All right, this morning we're, uh, we're going to come to the close of our study in Exodus. We've been uh, studying Moses' life in the book of Exodus, but our topic hasn't really been Moses, it hasn't really been Exodus. The, the topic of the study has been the glory of God. We've talked about the glory of God and seeing the glory of God. And I don't know if anybody remembers, it was 12 weeks ago that we started, and we started in our study of Exodus in the New Testament. We started in uh, the incident when Jesus took Peter and James and John to the top of Mount Tabor with him. And uh, while Peter and James and John were sleeping, they were supposed to be praying, but they were sleeping, they saw Moses and Elijah come down and meet with Jesus. And remember, they were having a discussion over there, and the word says that Jesus was transfigured. And uh, we, we look at that and we say, we, we see the, the glory of God. We see Jesus transfigured, and, and we see the glory of God in his face. And so we looked at that, and then we went to the Old Testament book of Exodus to Moses. As Moses met with God, and Moses and God gave Moses a, a task to do to lead the children of Israel out of Egypt, and we followed them across as incident after incident, time after time, God has done something in their life, and they have seen God at work. Uh, now, we're not going to go on in Exodus. This is, this is the end. They don't get to the promised land in Exodus. Those of you who know your Old Testament, uh, the rest of Exodus from this point on is uh, the building of the tabernacle and putting together the furnishings. And all those, those things are interesting, and there's a lot to learn in there. We're not going to study them uh, here on Sunday morning. Because we're on a journey to see the glory of God. And in the passage we're going to look at this morning, we're going to look at Exodus 33, 17 to 34, 7. Moses just comes out and asks, God, could I see your glory? You know, what, what, a, what a thing to ask. Uh, you can tell that Moses and, and God were, were, were getting pretty close at that point because Moses just comes right out and says, please show me your glory. And God shows Moses his glory, and in that, we get an idea of how we can glimpse the glory of God ourselves. So here on this mountain, we're, we're still on the mountain, we're going to discover the difference between our God and the gods of all the others. This is the God of glory. And when you talk about the glory of God, you know, Mike brought up a minute ago in, in the sing, mountains bow down and the seas will roar at the sound of his name. You know, that, that's a mighty thing. And I don't know if you've, if you've ever thought about God in the context of, of the mountain scenery that we have or sitting by the seaside and, and watching. You know, th those are mighty things. That, that, that is tremendous majesty of God. But that's not his glory. As magnificent and as powerful as it is, that's not what the Bible is talking about when it talks about the glory of God. The glory of God is, is not in his power, even though he's all-powerful. And you think about the, the things that are happening in our world, the, the, the 
weather events, the tornadoes, the hurricanes, the those those things that happen. Uh, you know, remember all the way back into the '80s when when Mount St. Helens blew its top. You, you guys remember that? You know what what a mighty display of power. But God's glory is not in His power, and it's not in His majesty, and it's not in His beauty. You know, we, we talk about, as we read through our, our Bible, we talk about the, the seraphim and the cherubim and Isaiah and John talk about the angels. The glory of God is not in that supernatural stuff. That's not where it is. The glory of God is not in His knowledge. Sorry. Even though God knows everything. He even knows why that fell over. God knows everything. But the glory of God is not in his omniscience or in his all-knowing. You know, any question that Moses had, Moses could have asked God any question, and God could have answered that question for Moses at that point, because God knows all. He knows everything. But the glory of God is not in his knowledge. It's not in his greatness. Although great is our Lord, that's not where his glory is. You know, God could have showed Moses the, the entire universe through, through a scope that is better than the Hubble Space Telescope. You know, you look at some of those things that are going on in, in space and you think about God and, and our God who is the creator of all that and he holds it in the palm of his hand. He, he is a mighty God, amen? He is a mighty God. But that's not his glory. That's not where his glory is. When the Lord wants us to see his glory, and we know this because this is what Moses asked, God, show me your glory. This is what God showed him. I'm going to read beginning Exodus 33. It's kind of a long passage. Um, I thought about cutting some of it out, but I'm going to read it all to you. The Lord said to Moses, I will also do this thing of which you have spoken. For you have found favor in my sight, and I have known you by name. And so God says to Moses, okay, I'm going to do what you ask. Uh, because because you're my favorite, because I like you. We become good friends. And Moses had a chance right there to ask anything. And he took advantage of that chance, and here's what he said in verse 18. Then Moses said, I pray to you, show me your glory. That's what he wanted to see. He wanted to know the glory of God. God said, I myself will make all my goodness pass before you. Okay, Moses, you want to see my glory? I'm going to show you my goodness. I will proclaim the name of the Lord before you, and I will be gracious. I'm going to show you my grace. I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. I will show compassion on whom I will show compassion. So he says to Moses, I'm going to show you. My goodness, I'm going to show you my grace. I'm going to show you my compassion. And I'm going to show you that it's totally up to me who I give grace to and who I give compassion to and who I'm good to. And so there's another word for that. 
And that's God's sovereignty. God says to Moses, I'm going to show you my glory. I'm going to show you my goodness and my sovereignty. That's what you're going to see. But, God said, you cannot see my face, for no man can see me and live. Then the Lord said, Behold, there is a place by me, and you shall stand there on the rock. And it will come about, while my glory is passing by, that I will put you in the cleft of the rock and cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take my hand away, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. And in chapter 34, Now the Lord said to Moses, Cut out for yourselves two stone tablets like the former ones. Remember, he broke the first two that God had written the Ten Commandments on. He says, Cut out for yourself two stone tablets, and I will write on the tablets the words that were on the former tablets that you shattered. So be ready by morning, and come up in the morning to Mount Sinai, and present yourself there to me on the top of the mountain. No man is to come with you, nor let any man be seen... Anywhere on the mountain, even the flocks and the herds may not be may not graze in front of that mountain. So he cut out two stone tablets like the former ones, and Moses rose up early in the morning and went up to Mount Sinai as the Lord had commanded him, and he took two stone tablets in his hand. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood there with him as he called upon the name of the Lord. Then the Lord passed by in front of him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in mercy and truth, who keeps mercy for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression and sin, yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished, visiting the iniquity of fathers on the children and on the grandchildren to the third and fourth generations." So God basically shows us two things about himself as uh, he walks by Moses and passes by Moses. Two things. His goodness. God is good. God is good. He's a good God. He's a kind God. He's a compassionate God. He's a gracious God. He's a patient God. And then he shows us his sovereignty. That he's that way because he wants to be. Because he chooses to be. And he chooses how he will be that way. You know, we know that God is patient with the lost. In Peter, Second Peter, uh, Peter writing, he says, The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness. People are saying, Why hasn't God come back yet? Why hasn't Jesus returned? Because he's patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. God is patient. He was patient with Israel. Look what the psalmist said, Psalm 78. And they remembered that God was their rock and the most high God, their redeemer. But they deceived, talking about the children of Israel, they deceived him with their mouth and they lied to them with their tongue. Their heart was not steadfast toward him, nor were they faithful in his covenant. But God, being compassionate, forgave their iniquity and did not destroy them. And often he restrained his anger and did not arouse all his wrath. Thus he remembered that they were but flesh, a wind that passes and does not return. The psalmist is talking about this event that, we, that, that we're talking about in, in Exodus. And he goes on, verse 40, And how often they rebelled against him in the wilderness, 
and grieved him in the desert. Again and again they tempted God and pained the Holy One of Israel. They did not remember his power the day that he redeemed them from their adversary. The the psalmist tells us that God was patient with them in the desert. And and if, if there's anything we can learn from all of that, it's this. God is patient with you. God is patient with me. Do you ever do you ever wonder why God is so slow or why he takes such a long time or why he does some of the things that he does? Does it ever bother you that there's so much evil in our world? Does that ever bother you at all? Do you ever wonder why God doesn't just act and punish the evil and set everybody straight? Why does God allow things like 2020 to take place? Why has he allowed this year to happen? Does it ever bother you that God just seems to be inactive and punishing and reckoning with these things? Well, Peter tells us God is not slow as we think of it. He's patient. He's long-suffering. He waits a long time because God doesn't want anyone to perish. God wants everyone to come to repentance, and therefore he waits as long as he can. While he waits... He suffers alongside us. His heart breaks in two. And he grieves. But he's patient. And he suffers a long time waiting and pleading with people to repent of their sin and come to him. And God's ways are always patient because God himself is slow to anger and merciful. And so that's what he wants Moses to see. That's what he wants Moses to see when he shows us him glory is how patient God is, how loving God is, how how good God is. And so I guess you could say that the glory of God is in his goodness. It's in his and it's in his patience. And it's in his willing to wait towards us. But the second thing he shows Moses when he reveals his glory, following his goodness, he shows Moses his sovereignty. He says, I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show compassion on whom I will show compassion. In other words, I don't do it at your command. I do it as I choose to, as as I want to. So when we say that God is sovereign, let me tell you what that means. At some time in the distant past, God was alone. He was... he was, there wasn't even any creation. There, there, there wasn't even anything out. He was just alone. He was just God. And he could have stayed that way if he chose to. It was totally his choice. And at some point, he, he must have asked himself this question. Shall I make anything or shall I not? Shall I do a creation or should I not? And he had a right to do that. Yeah, as as I was writing that down, I kept thinking, you know, I don't know that I want to talk about God's right. He had a choice to do that. He could do it or not do it. And he had a choice to make us. He had a choice. He could make us or he could not make any creatures. And when he made the world, he had a right to, to form the world in whatever shape and size he pleased and put the inhabitants on the world in whatever shape and size he wanted. 
And when he decided to make us, when he decided to make humankind, he had a right to make whatever kind of creature he wanted, that he liked. I think about when I, when, when I think about that, I think about in the I think the very first Star Wars, and they go into the to the bar there, and and uh, there are all these creatures, all these crazy looking creatures, and you, and you look at all of those. Come on, you have to look at all those and think. Whew, I'm glad God chose to make us the way he did. You know? I mean, I'd hate to have a nose that long, wouldn't you? Um, God chose to make us just like he wanted us. He made you just like he wanted you. And he is sovereign. And he didn't make any mistakes. He made us, he made you, each one of us as individuals, just exactly the way he wanted us to be. Do you hear what I'm saying? In context of what we have today, my friend Tom, we worked together back in Moab. We were, we were in the office one day, and uh, he, he said to me, if I were God, I would have put my mouth on the top of my head I said, Tom, you would have what? He said, I would have put my mouth on the top of my head. That way I could put my breakfast under my hat and eat it on the way to work. <laughs> I guess he just missed his breakfast that morning. But God made us the way he wanted us to be. He made Adam. And he could have put any command, any restriction, anything upon Adam that he chose to. You know, he wasn't bound by any law. He, he could do anything that he chose to do. And so he said, don't touch that tree or you will die. And when Adam disobeyed, God chose to punish him and his race forever. And he could have done that. And the fact that he doesn't, that he didn't, demonstrates his goodness, his mercy, his compassion. And you know, we know that about God. But what about us? What, what does that mean for us? If we're going to learn God's ways and if we're going to be instruments of his spirit, then we need to learn God's ways. We, we need to learn some long-suffering. We need to learn what it means to be slow to anger. We need to learn patience. Do you think any of the stuff that we go through is God teaching us those things? Teaching us how to suffer long? Teaching us how to be patient? You know, because we can't just do it out of our sovereignty. We do it because God teaches it to us. We must learn to be slow to anger. And learn patience. I want, to, I want to share with you this morning three ways I think we need to learn to do that, that we need to practice doing that. The first is, is we need to learn how to be still before God and let God be God. Psalm 46.1 says this, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. 
Therefore we will not fear, though the earth should change and though the mountains slip into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam through the mountains, quake at swelling pride. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy dwelling place of the Most High. Come, behold the works of the Lord, who has wrought desolations in the earth. He makes wars to cease to the ends of the earth. He breaks the bow and cuts the spear in two. He burns the chariots with fire. And then listen to verse 10. You know verse 10. Be still. That means cease striving and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. Know that I am God. Where is God in all that we see? You know, whenever I see that passage, I I always think about an event that happened back when we lived in New Mexico. And I was working with the Fellowship of Christian Athletes quite a bit. And uh, we had a guy come to one of our state meetings. His name was Bunny Martin. B-U-N-N-Y, Bunny Martin. And when you get home today, look that up on, on, uh, on YouTube or on the Internet. And then just go to YouTube and look at a couple of his, uh, his, the videos that are on there about Bunny Martin. He was, in 1950, or in the 1950s, he was the world champion yo-yoer. And you think, well, okay, Pastor, why are you going to talk about a yo-yoer? He was the world champion yo-yoer. And... Uh, he came to our, our FCA meeting, and, and he did a lot of things for Christians. Uh, he yo-yoed, he juggled. I mean, some, some marvelous juggling. And some card tricks. And in doing those, he shared his Christian testimony. Talked about what God was and who God was. And it was a great show. And it was a great testimony. But at one point he stopped and he got real serious. And he said, there was a time when his daughter passed away. You know, that's not supposed to happen. Parents aren't supposed to see their kids pass away. It's supposed to work the other way. But his, his daughter died. Some of you know what, what that's like. And he said, the way he responded He said, I got mad at God. I got angry with God. He thought all the times I'd spent working to share the gospel, the gospel of God's goodness, and God let his daughter die. And he struggled with that, he said, for a long time. And then he said, I understood God say to me, Look, Bunny, I don't answer to you. You answer to me. And Bunny said when he got that straight, his anger at God disappeared. And he realized he had to be long-suffering. He had to be patient. Like God was patient. You know, that's our first thing to understand. God is in control. He hasn't lost control. He hasn't lost control of your life. He hasn't lost control of our world. You know, he, he's not up there fretting in his, in his boots about the coronavirus and what he's going to do about it. God is still in control. 
He hasn't lost his control. He sees everything. And, and, and you know, that, that's both good and bad. He sees everything, so you don't get away with anything. He knows what's going on. We're not invisible to God. He sees us. But he also sees our adversaries. And, and, and he knows whether he's for us or against us. He knows whether we're for him or against him. You know, you, you're, you're not neutral. He knows who are his adversaries. But he's even in control of his adversaries. God knows the past. He knows what's in your past. He knows what's in my past. But he also knows the future. He, he knows the future ever bit as good as he knows the past. And in our relationship to God, in order to become like him in patience, we need to just be still and let him be God. Dr. Vaughn was one of my New Testament professors in seminary in uh, Fort Worth. Uh, he was a great biblical scholar. He wrote, he wrote a lot of New Testament books. He wrote some of the New Testament commentaries that, that we used even. And uh, he was also a terrible test giver because I could never pass his test. But that beside the point, he was a great teacher. He was, a, he, he, he was a man of God. He knew God's word. In one of his classes, I was taking him for the book of Colossians. We were studying Colossians. And he stopped at one point. And he just looked out at us. And he was talking about this subject, this topic. And his voice got low and, and kind of a little bit of a tremor in it. And he said, the one regret in my whole life is that there were too many times that I wasn't still and let God be God. We need to be still and let God be God. And then the second is we need to persevere in God's will. Uh, persevere is an old word. Our forefathers understood it, but we don't understand it as well because, you know, we kind of live in an instant society. We want ours, and we want it now. I mean, when I go to buy something, uh, if I can get it from one place and they'll send it in two days, and I get it from another place and they'll send it in five days, guess which one I choose? Even though it costs a little bit more because I want it now. And, and, and that's the way we are. We live in an instant society. Um, I saw a new outdoor grill advertised. And its selling point was, you can have your hamburgers ready in only eight minutes. I thought, eight minutes to a hamburger? Wow. How many days will it take to get that grill? And then I thought, you know what? Part of what makes a hamburger so good, a grilled hamburger so good, is smelling it. And anticipating it. You know, whenever we would go and play a golf tournament someplace and there would be a, uh, the guy would be out there grilling the burgers for lunch or, or whatever, you know, about three or four holes before you get to the lunch place, you start smelling those burgers. And those are the best burgers in the world. Not because they taste any better, because you anticipated them so long. You persevered for it. And it's the same with the will of God. 
Part of what God has for us is in the striving, the endurance, the perseverance in becoming what God wants us to be. You know, God can make us instantly perfect if he wanted to. He could give us instant perfection. But he doesn't want that. He wants us to struggle with it. He wants us to persevere with it. He wants us to grow in it. In Hebrews 10, uh, we're going to study this on Wednesday night. The writer of Hebrews says, Therefore do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what was promised. For yet in a very little while, he who is coming will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith, and if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back to destruction, but of those who have faith to the preserving of the soul. Endurance, patience, long-suffering, slow to anger. Do you see how they're connected? That's what makes God's glory God's glory. Because he has all those things in, in perfection. Patience is not passive. Patience is intensely active as, we, as we're patient. You know, in, in ministry, do you know that the, the average pastor, his average tenure in a church is two years? Do you know why? Because we struggle for perfection. We struggle for a perfect situation. We struggle to, to have a perfect church. So when that doesn't happen... The pastor decides he can change these struggles for new struggles in another place. You know, and he still isn't going to find the perfect church. Uh, but it isn't patience. And, and lay people understand this too. They want instant perfection, instant results, instant satisfaction. And if it doesn't come, we rush off to something else. But God's growth is not always in the results. Sometimes God's growth is in the struggle. And when we quit too soon, we never see the results. Patience is active. Patience requires self-discipline, self-control, self-denial. In, in Moses' day, the people who patiently endured, believed in God, held on to the end, they saw the promised land. Those who quit on their emotions, their feelings... Never got there. Never made it. So with God, we need to be still. With ourselves, we need to endure. And then with others, we need to be gentle. 1 Thessalonians 2, 7 says, But we proved to be gentle among you, as a nursing mother tenderly cares for her own children. Having so fond an affection for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives, because you have become very dear to us. For you recall, brethren, our labor and hardship, and how working night and day so as not to be a burden to any of you, we proclaim to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses, so is God, how devoutly and uprightly and blamelessly we behave toward you believers. Just as you know how we were exhorting and encouraging and imploring each of you as a father would his own children, so that you would walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. That passage of scripture is our model 
for dealing with other people. If we could learn to do that, if we could learn to deal with other people in that way, you know, we need to work on the first two, patience and being still and long-suffering. But if we would learn to work on those things, we could also learn to be gentle with others. Be still before God, endure in ourselves, and be gentle with others. They're the key to being patient like God. Now back to the desert. In the desert, each time they failed, each time they failed to do what God had asked them to do or what God commanded them to do, every time they failed, it was because they broke one of those three things. They didn't let God be God. They, they didn't persevere. And they weren't gentle. Especially they weren't gentle with Moses. You know, they weren't gentle. God was in this for them. He wanted them to become a great nation. He made a new covenant with them. And now he's made a new covenant with us. And, and I want to conclude this morning by talking about that covenant just a little bit. The covenant that we're working under. Jesus perfectly did those three things. He let God be God. He suffered with endurance. And he prepared. He dealt with us in gentleness. Didn't Jesus do those things? He did those things perfectly. He knew how to be still before God. As a matter of fact, you know, he lived about 33 years. We only know anything about the first months of his life. One incident when he was 12 and then three years at the end of his life, everything else, he was by himself. He was patient. You know, he knew what he was supposed to be and what he was supposed to do, but he was patient. He was waiting for the right time. He knew how to patiently endure with himself. And then he went to the cross and endured the suffering. Hebrews tells us he endured the suffering, despising the shame, and accomplished the will of God in his life. He knew how to be gentle with others. And he knows how to be gentle with us. One covenant, our covenant, believe in Jesus Christ as Lord. Not believe that he existed, not believe that he is good but believe that he existed, that he's good, and he is the boss. He is the Lord. And so we turn our hearts towards Jesus. Maybe not often, sometimes more often than we want. We see God at work. We see him work in our lives and in the lives of others. And when you see those things in your life, when you see those things in God's life, reflected in your life, folks, you have seen the glory of God. That's it. That's it. Now, you know, I spent 12 weeks just to get to this point so that you would know how you know when you see the glory of God. It's when you see the, the glory of God, the goodness of God, the sovereignty of God, reflected in your own life and in the lives of those around you that you experience His glory.
God, let us see your glory. Would that be your prayer? Let me see your glory in me and my church and my friends and my relationships. I want to know your glory. Let's pray.